Welcome to the Life Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church based in North Dallas with a desire to help people love God, love people, and make a difference. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. We're going to begin tonight by reading from John chapter 10, starting at verse 22. John chapter 10 starting at verse 22. And I'll actually be reading from the New Living Translation. So if you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen, either one of these here. Um, And while you're finding your place, I just want to say what an honor it is, no matter how long I've been here or been a part of this church, what an honor it is to preach from this platform. I love this church. I love our pastor. I love our pastoral team. And I'm so thankful that we still get to do this. Amen. I, I really am. I really am. John chapter 10, starting at verse number 22, it says, It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. And he was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. And the people surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work that I do in my father's name, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep and my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. The father and I are one. And once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? Jesus got a little sassy with him. He said, I've been doing a lot of good stuff. Can you let me know which good thing did I do that you're going to kill me for? And they replied, Get this, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Tonight I'm going to talk for just a moment about Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, this could be viewed as an easy topic for an apostolic church, but I have found it challenging in prayer and in preparation to find the right direction to take. In some ways, this sermon uh, could preach itself, right? Because the same God that created the heavens and the earth, he created animals, he created Adam and Eve, he was manifest in the flesh, he came to earth, he, as a baby boy, he grew up, came the way no one knew that he would, and at the age of 30, started a ministry that changed the world, The same God that led his people through the middle of the sea and sent fire from heaven to engulf sacrifices is the same God that rose teenage girls from the dead, caused the lame to walk again, and opened blind eyes. The same God who caused the world to flood is the same God who flooded the Jewish people's hearts with the new birth experience. It could be really easy to preach Jesus is God, but that is not the direction God took me tonight. You see, the Jews thought that God was a big, booming, unseeable, all-powerful God that would come to save them on a white horse, right? He would come into town as the new king. He would destroy the enemy one day. But Jesus showed them that he was God. He was the Messiah. And he came to save their hearts and destroy sin. To destroy sin. 
Now, before we go much further, actually, we're, we're going to do a, a little history lesson here, a little bit of information for you about um, the, the, the Bible. See, the Bible was written in both Hebrew and in Greek. It was also translated in multiple different languages. And while I am no college professor by any means, um, I would like to help a little bit walk in this and explain a little bit about why it's so important to know that Jesus is God. So the name of God was revealed to Moses in Exodus as Yahweh. We would pronounce this as Yahweh, but really there were no, uh, there were no vowels in between this. It really was just Yodhead Wadhead is how they would say it in some, not that Texan accent, but you know what I mean. There, it was not Yahweh. Later, the Jewish people refused to even say it so that it did not become common, and they changed it. And so what we see in often the translations that you would see the Bible would actually be Elohim. It means God, creator, mighty, and strong. However, in these synagogues, they actually changed it even further, and they went so far to say Adonai, which meant my Lord. In Greek, it was translated to Kyrios, or Lord. Years later, um, the, the scholars would take the vowel letters from Adonai, the A, the O, and the A, and they would then put it into Yahweh, and uh, they couldn't say the Y, they didn't have a letter for Y, and so they actually changed it to a J, which is how we get this. It looks very funny, because that's how their letters worked, but that is essentially what became today's modern word, Jehovah. Jehovah. However, in the 19th and 20th centuries, biblical scholars began to pronounce Yodhead Wadhead as Yahweh. Yahweh. I went too far. And um, here, that, no, I didn't go too far. See, this is next. Matthew 1.23, we say, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In fact, even further, it actually means Jehovah is with us. Yahweh is with us. Later, we know that the angel told Mary to actually name him Jesus. Emmanuel was not his name. They said, name him Jesus. And so Jesus means Jehovah is salvation or God will save us. Yahweh will save us. And later on, finally, they added Christ behind the name of Jesus. So normally, uh, when in, in Bible times, there was no first name, last name, right? It was normally wherever you were from or your father. That's the name that went with you. And so that's why we had Jesus of Nazareth or we had James of Zebedee, uh, Mary of Magdala, where often we call them Mary Magdalene because that's the way that we see it, but it was not a first and last name. So to add Christ to the end of Jesus said Christ means Messiah or anointed one. And they were removing the connection of, of Nazareth they were removing the connection of his father, Joseph, and further solidifying the connection as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So tonight, I'm actually here to do the opposite of what Jesus did uh, as he walked the earth, in those, especially those three years of ministry, while he was pointing people and showing them that he was God. And, and we, we already know, right? We already know that Jesus is the Messiah that he came to die for our sins, that salvation only comes through him, and that he alone holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. But I am here to remind us that if Jesus is God, we should not ignore the character of God. If Jesus is Yahweh, and Jesus is Emmanuel, Yahweh with us, then Yahweh is Jesus, and Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves. 
The character of Yahweh in the Old Testament still applies and extends to us today. And it's time that I want to take a time to focus on that relationship with Yahweh. God wants us to have a relationship with him through salvation in Jesus. Now, from the very beginning of time, God wanted it known that he was one. He was not many. He was one. And that's an important thing to know. As we talk about who is God, it's important to recognize that, that God wanted it well understood how and who he was and how it separated was different from the other gods of the area. Uh, when I was younger, I definitely wondered, how, what, who came up with all of these gods, right? Were there all of these other all-powerful gods? Maybe not as powerful God. Who came up with them? How, how were they discovered? Did someone find them? Did they make them up? And, and uh, in my studies, I was able to find that it, it's actually a really interesting story. While God created the earth and God created man, man inherently was evil. And man then decided as they moved out and they created, um, they created communities, they created cities, they created countries, essentially, they began to create gods. And um, they, had, they dreamed up gods that controlled the moon and the sun and the rain and the snow. Every city had gods that did different things. And everyone had to do as the city priest said to worship those gods. If you left one city to go to another city and you left gods in that city and you went and worshiped new gods in the new city. Um, and just a quick fact, one of the main gods that the Canaanites had was a god called El. And so they had many other gods for every little thing, but they also were like, uh, you know what, just in case, we also think there's a God who is over all the other gods, and so we're going to call him El. It's just that all-powerful God. We don't know what to pray to him for unless we have a problem with another God. And that is why in Genesis 17:1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. That word L by itself would normally be lowercase, a lowercase God. But God said, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. He said, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. If El meant that all-powerful God in that region, then Yahweh God said, I am that all-powerful God. And he told Abraham, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. He used the language of that day to show Abram that he who he truly was. And God did this many times over the Old Testament. He called himself El Roi, El Ola, oh, I'm going to butcher all of these. Olam, Gibhor, El Eloah. There was many, many more. Later, when searching for a word to replace Yahweh, to not diminish its meaning, what did they land on? Elohim. El-Ohim. Meaning God, creator, mighty and strong. So if the people wanted um, it to rain in a drought, they would sacrifice their animals or strip themselves naked and beat themselves with glass bottles or scratch their skin with rocks because that's what apparently made the gods listen to them. They would have mass suicides for themselves, for the gods. They would cut off appendages and even burn down their own houses just to get a god to send them rain or let the sun come up. 
In fact, many times throughout the Israelites' time of apostasy or time that they fell away from God, they worshipped many different gods. We can see them named all throughout Scripture. One uh, popular one was named Molech. It was literally a giant statue that had arms like this, and I'm not going to be super graphic, but they had to sacrifice firstborn babies, and they would put um, the fire in between below his arms, and they would put the baby right there on the golden, um, the golden statue's arms. Make the whole family be there for it to just to get this God to do something that they wanted. But back in Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the Israelites that from the beginning, God called Abraham out and met him where he called him. Now, that doesn't seem that big of a deal to us, but you have to realize, again, that if there were only gods in certain cities, when you left a city and we went somewhere else, there was different gods there. And if you left and went into the wilderness to start a new city, guess what? There were not gods there unless a city, another priest came and created new gods for you, right? And so when Abraham, he lived near a place called Ur of the Chaldee, a place where gods ruled. The, the gods that existed when he was a child were Nala and Sin, gods of the moon and the sun, respectively, who really enjoyed child sacrifice, apparently. So imagine when a God, the God, Yahweh, came to him and said, leave where you are and go to this barren wasteland and I will meet you there. That was mind-blowing to Abraham. He had, he had no connection to, to, to Yahweh. He only had a connection to sin and Nala. This was, this was mind-blowing to him as he was called out to go. Later on, we even see that Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac to Yahweh, just like he saw his people do to the god Sin and Nala. So it meant just a little bit more than saying sacrifice your son, the son you've been waiting for, the son that I promised. It was even more so because now God was saying, will you do what your people would have done for the gods that aren't even real? Will you do what, 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 what they would have done for these gods that wouldn't actually answer their prayers? And back in Deuteronomy, Moses reminded how God had taken care of them as they exited Egypt. He recaps the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, sharing time after time of how God was there. And then we get to Deuteronomy 6. It includes one of the most popular Hebrew prayers of the Jewish people, the Shema, or the Shema Yisrael. It sounds a little bit like this. they will recite this prayer. And that's just the very, very beginning. They actually cover their eyes as they say the very beginning. And then they whisper something under their breath. It's a, it's a line that was added by, uh, in, in Jewish text. And then they finish all throughout Deuteronomy 6 and a few other chapters. 
They have it memorized from the time that they are a child. And in English, verses 4 through 5 are translated as this. You probably know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Some translations would say all your might. And I want to spend actually the bulk of our time tonight here breaking down this prayer. The prayer is called the Shema from the very first word of the prayer. This is the prayer in Hebrew. I'm not even going to try to say it. But um, everything where you see an apostrophe uh, at time is just what we would do is fill that in with a letter like E or I or A. And so that very first word is Shema. And that is where this comes from. That is the word hear or listen, O Israel. Um, Then it says, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's two important things to note here. Lord is very important and it is used twice. And then the other side of it is that it is very equal like a poem that Lord is equal to God and Lord is equal to one. The Lord, our ruler, our God, Elohim, he is one. It's tying the word one to the word God in a way that is undeniable. But we're going to dive deeper into why it matters that God is one later. But for now, I want to continue on with the prayer. Very, the very next section here uh, is going to right here. This I'm not, again, going to try to say it. The root word of it is ahava or love. Love. Moses tells us you shall love the Lord your God. And, and this is such an interesting part because in the English language, we added you shall love. But the reality is that those words don't exist in Hebrew. It truly just says ahava, love. It is a command, love God, love Lord God. Secondly, the word love here is ahava. There's many different versions of the word love in Hebrew. And this one is just a very general use of the word, meaning to love as an action. In fact, it's the same word used all throughout Deuteronomy as Moses um, says over and over to love or ahava, the love, uh, the Lord your God. It's the same love used in Genesis for Abraham loving Isaac before he sacrifices him or Isaac loving Rachel. Jesus also references this same form of love, the Greek translation of it, when he says the second greatest commandment is to love or ahava your neighbor as yourself. Then we know it continues. Moses goes on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The root word there is lev. We have a different understanding of the word heart, though, than they did at this time. Um, The Jewish people had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that anything to do with thinking happened with the heart. So, for example, you actually know with the heart. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. You think with the heart. In Proverbs 14.33, it says we see wisdom is enshrined in an understanding heart. The heart is understanding. More than that, you can desire with your heart. The heart is the mind. The heart is sometimes the soul. The, The heart can even be the body in reference. The heart is where you make choices motivated by your desire. So David had it in his heart in 2 Samuel 7 to build a temple for the Lord. 
And in Psalms, we read countless times of David saying he has about his, the desires of his heart. And so getting back to the Shema and the commands of Moses, every day God's people are called to devote to God their whole body, their whole mind, their feelings, their desires, their future, and their failures. That is truly what it means to love, or I'm sorry, to ahava the Lord your God with all of your love. But then it goes on further and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul, or this word, root word is nefesh, nefesh. The word nephesh occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. Now, the common and most used translation is soul, but that comes with a lot of English baggage. The word soul for us, actually, we don't even realize it, but it has years of ancient Greek philosophy and ideas of a non-physical, immortal essence of a person, essentially our ghost, right, that is left behind as our body dies. But the word nephesh doesn't mean anything like that um, in Deuteronomy 6. In fact, the word more, more likely is understood as the word throat, the word throat, and I'm going to show you that in a few different ways. In Genesis 1.21, it said, So God created great sea creatures and every living thing. How do you live? You breathe through your throat. The word for living thing is nephesh. In Genesis 1.30, And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has nephesh, everything that breathes, that has life. Genesis 2 and 7 said, Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. He became nephesh. He became a soul. Exodus 12, 16, On the first day there should be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there should be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone, nephesh, must eat. What do you, how do you eat? You eat through your mouth, down your throat. I've got one more. Numbers 11, 44 through 6. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetite, our nephesh, our, our soul, it's gone. All we ever see is this manna. So nephesh means so much more than just soul. It also means so much more than just throat. It was what you did with your your throat. Sometimes it's referred to creatures, to animals, to body, to the human, to life, to soul, even to the word being. In Genesis, there were 33 nephesh uh, in Jacob's family. That is just 33 people. Later, this one is is, uh, really wild. If you haven't read uh, the first five books of the Bible in a while, they're crazy. Um, And there's a couple of references to something that is the nephesh slayer, the soul slayer, or a kidnapper is called sometimes a nephesh thief, someone who steals life, steals the soul. And if the life breath has left a human or an animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, a dead nephesh, which is just a corpse. And you don't have a soul. You don't have a nephesh. You are a nephesh, a living, breathing being. Now, that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the the Bible, uh, the biblical authors do have a concept of this, we see that through Scripture, every single time the word nephesh is not 
used. There's a completely different word that is used almost exclusively for soul only. But I want to point two more things out. In Psalms 119, 175, it even says, Let me, nephesh, live so I can praise you. Me is nephesh, not live. Not, not, Not life is not nephesh, me, I, my body, my soul, everything within me. And recently, Pastor uh, preached from Psalms 42, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my nephesh, my soul for you, O God. My soul, my nephesh, thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There is both the connection uh, as, as the deer pants after the water, so I pant my soul after you. He describes both physical thirst and spiritual thirst with the same word, nephesh. So back to the Shema and the commands of Moses. To love God with all your soul, all of your nephesh, it really means so much more than soul. It means to devote your whole existence to your God. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Lastly, Moses said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and then he said with all of your strength. And this one, this is my favorite uh, it is mayod with your strength. Now, the Hebrew word mayod occurs 300 times in Scripture, and it doesn't actually mean strength. Another fun one. The most common translation is actually very or much, M-U-C-H. It's really just an adverb, a word that normally comes alongside other words to add to their meaning. For instance, in Genesis 1, for six days, God looked at each day and said it was good. But on day number six, God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. It was mayod good. It was very good. It's also used when the waters rose in the days of Noah. In fact, sometimes, uh, again, Hebrew is just fun. Uh, You know how sometimes we would say that it's really, really cool or it's very, very hot? Well, they would do the same thing, and the waters prevailed exceedingly. That's not just mayod. That's actually mayod, mayod. If you look it up, it just says, and the waters prevailed mayod, mayod. So sometimes they would even just say it multiple times over to repeat and really put emphasis behind it. And getting back to the Shema and the commands of Moses, that means that to love the Lord your God with all your mayod, all of your your strength, it's really not strength, it's really all of your your muchness. That's actually a definition, muchness. And that like doesn't make sense, and also it makes sense at the same time, right? You kind of get it. The final thing to love God with is just muchness. It's, it's so much more than just soul. It's, it's so much more than just strength or might. It is, it's loving God with every possibility, every opportunity and capacity that you have to honor God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's actually the most expansive word in the Shema. Mayod can refer to literally almost anything which raises one fascinating point. Because this word was capable of many meanings, ancient Jewish communities interpreted mayot of the Shema in different ways. So the ancient Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they came to mayot in the Shema and they translated it actually as the word might or power. The word in Greek is dunamis. And if you've been around the church for very long, you know that that same word dunamis is what was used in Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power 
after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That same word is the same as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mayod, your strength, your dunamis, your power. It's the interpretation adopted by most modern translations. But if you look at the the, uh, ancient Aramaic translations of the Bible, you'll discover that these scholars interpret it to mean wealth. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your wealth, all the money that you have. And when Jesus was asked about the most important commandment in Scripture, he quoted the Shema and used two words to unpack mayod to make sure that it mattered. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your power or strength. So which one of these interpretations of mayod is right? Well, that's the wrong question. (laughs) They all are. It doesn't just mean strength or power or wealth or mind. It means yes and amen. It means all of it, right? The point is that in everything in a person's life, every moment and every opportunity, every ability and capacity offers a chance to love and honor the one who made you. It's a call to God with all of your muchness. So let's tie it all together. Shema, listen, hear, O Israel. You must of Ahava, you must love the Lord your God with all of your lev, which is your heart, uh, your body, your mind, your feeling, your desire, your future, your failures, all your nefesh, your soul, devoting your whole existence to God, and all of your mayod, your strength, your power, your might, your wealth, your muchness, your everything. All of this context is important because every Jewish child was raised to memorize the Shema. They knew these words, and especially the religious leaders knew these words. They could quote them in their sleep. And so when Jesus came and they said, tell us the greatest commandment, he used the Shema as the greatest commandment. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that it was equally as important. The thing that they've memorized all of their life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, that the Lord our God is one. He said just as important as that is to love your neighbor as yourself. That was offensive to them. Why would I love my neighbor as much as I love God, especially when I'm supposed to do it in my heart and my soul and my mind? We've made traditions around this prayer. We cover our eyes. We wear the little box with the thing on our head. We, we say things under our breath. We say certain things loud. We say certain things fast. We sing it all the same way. We've put all this work, and now you're saying, I also have to love my neighbor the same way as I am supposed to love God? More so for Jesus in our, in our, our uh, text at the beginning to say, my father and I are one. Jesus was not saying we are, we are connected. He was not saying we are alike. He was not saying we are the same in personality. He was once again tying himself to the Shema. The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. My father and I are one. It was a direct correlation and every religious leader knew it and that's why they picked up stones to kill him. And, and maybe you're like, okay, well, that, you're drawing that to conclusions. You're just jumping ahead. But no, 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 let's go back to John 10. It says in verse 32, Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? Again, he's being sassy. And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. What is blasphemy? It's something against God. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
They knew, as he said, I and my Father are one, is Jesus not saying, hey, we're kind of connected. He was saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the Messiah, and I am here. They knew. They knew what the statement meant. And it would be really easy to take this and turn this into a oneness message, but that's not what I'm here to preach tonight. What God has called me to preach is that if Jesus is God, Jesus is Yahweh, then Jesus needs to be Lord of your life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, hear, Dallas, the Lord Jesus, the Lord is one. There are too many Christians walking around proclaiming Jesus, teaching and preaching about Jesus, but not looking or acting anything like him. Jesus is not Lord of their life. The world is. Because there's a way bigger difference than following him and letting him be Lord of your life. The Bible tells us all throughout Scripture that there are times that the disciples would follow him and there were disciples who turned away and left him. So much more than just following Jesus. It is letting him be Lord of your life. In John 13 and 13, Jesus said, You call me teacher and Lord, ruler, and you are right because I, that, because that's what I am. He just got all up in it and said, I'm not going to dilly-dally. I'm not going to beat around the bush. You call me Lord, that's who I am. I am your ruler. I am your Lord. This English word in our Bible represents one Aramaic, three Greek, and nine Hebrew words, two of them in two different forms in the English word, Lord. It expresses all level of dignity, honor, and majesty. And I think that it's best explained in an Old Testament scripture, Psalms 97. We're going to read the entire chapter. It says, the Lord is king. Jesus is king. Maybe remember that from Palm Sunday. Let the earth rejoice. Let the farthest coastlands be glad. Dark clouds surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Who sits on the throne when we get to heaven? Jesus. He's the Lord. Fire spreads ahead of him and burns up all his foes. His lightning flashes out across the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Every nation sees his glory. Those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods, for every god must bow to him. I want to stop for a second. Beforehand, the people would go from city to city. They would create communities and they would create gods. We've stopped doing that. We're not creating gods, but we sure haven't stopped creating idols. And we as a people, an American people, a, a English speaking people, a, 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 a people that are so protected, a people that are so blessed, who compared, compared to the rest of the world is rich beyond measure. We're building idol after idol after idol. And that's why sometimes we can't let God be Lord of our life, Jesus be Lord of our life, because we put idols before him. Those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods, for every God must bow to him. When was the last time you bragged about God instead of bragging about something that you did or something that you bought or something that you, you went? Don't let it become an idol in your life. People who brag about their worthless gods. 
for every God must bow to him. And he goes on, Jerusalem has heard and rejoiced and all the towns of Judah are glad because of your justice, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are supreme over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. That's not a request. That's a command. If you love the Lord your God, you will hate evil. He protects the lives of his godly people and he rescues them from the power of the wicked. Light shines on the godly and joy on those whose hearts are right. May all who are godly rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. Amen. And I'm here to tell you, if Jesus is God and God is Lord, then Jesus is that holy name, right? May all who are godly rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. Jesus is that name. There is not salvation outside of him. There is not a throne in heaven without him. Jesus is the name. I want to call our attention back to John 10 that we started with this evening. Starting at verse 26, it says, But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep, listen, Shema, to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Nefesh. And they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my Father, Yahweh, has given them to me, and he is more powerful, he is Lord, than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. He's just using the Shema as he walks through this to to reveal to them, not only am I telling you I'm the Messiah, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the one here for you. And he wants to, all through it, he's using the language that they know, connecting it, letting them know, I, I, I'm telling you, it's who I am. And that's why they got angry and they tried to stone him. The musicians could come. Jesus is calling us, he's calling you to be his sheep. Will you follow him? Will you let Yahweh be Lord of your life? Will you, Ahava, will you love your, your, the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength? Will you love Jesus with everything that you think and do? Will you love Jesus with your body and your soul and everything that you are? Will you love Jesus with your, your, your muchness and everything else? Here's the best way to break it down, to break down what the Shema was saying is love the Lord your God, with everything you think and do, with everything that you are, and go ahead and love him with everything else. He said, we're going to get all of it. Everything that you think and do, you think with your heart is what they thought. Everything that you are, your soul, your nefesh, everything else, your mayot. It's, it's that simple because it's just everything. You have to love God with everything, everything. If we could stand, this really isn't even a, a Passion Week sermon in some ways, if you think about it. I haven't read one scripture that's leading up to Jesus dying on the cross. But John 10 is really just a few, it's like six weeks out 
from the Last Supper. It's about six weeks out from the, the night that Jesus went and prayed in the garden. Just right after the story that we, we read where he says, I and my father are one, is when his friend Lazarus dies and he, he goes and he, he brings him back from the dead. But I felt so connected and called to be reminded of the Shema, this very simple prayer that the Jewish people say over and over and over and over, and they have this understanding that maybe you and I don't really have. But it does so much more for us once we recognize who God is that when we know that I and my Father are one, we see then that Jesus deserves and requires the same thing. I don't have this on the the screen, but Mark 15, 33 says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him, on a reed so that he could drink. Wait, he said, let me see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And then Jesus uttered another loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the Roman soldier, a Gentile, not a Jew, who stood facing him, saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. He was truly the Son of God. Now, this is is a Roman centurion who doesn't have all the history of the Jews, who who doesn't understand the language. The language Son of God was not used very much. Son of man was used. Jesus even called himself the Son of man. But Son of God was a little bit different. This was a Gentile, a Roman, seeing Surely, surely, this is the Son of God. His connection, his culture, he was thinking about the gods that he knew of, Zeus and his son Hercules, right? All of these these gods that they knew and they looked up to, and those gods, much differently than the gods of, of the time that most of the Jewish people were around, they had sons and daughters. And the Roman centurion said, surely this is the son of God. Not just saying he is a man that is of God. He's saying he is a God. Surely, even I can realize that. In John 14, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. No, you, no, you don't, Lord, said Thomas. You have, we have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus looked at him and said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one 
can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, still not understanding, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Show us Yahweh. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? I and my Father are one. He said, the words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me, who does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the work you have seen me do. Jesus is calling to us tonight. He is calling to us to be one of his sheep, to follow him, to truly love him and follow him. But he wants to make sure that we don't just follow him with this, forgive me, but this just recited sinner's prayer. He doesn't just want us to follow him in this, 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 this passive way where I can say I'm a Christian, but I can keep living how I want. This once saved, always saved movement. No, he wants you to follow him the same way that his people followed Yahweh. To truly love with all of your heart, everything you think and do. With all of your soul, everything that you are and everything else. Your strength, your might, your mayo. kind of a, just a, it's a weird transition. I'm going to be honest. I don't know how else to do it, but just to say this. Tonight, these altars are open. And if you would like to rededicate your heart and your soul and your strength to the Lord of heaven, to the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of everything, of every being, then I want you to come. Tonight, I'm calling you to, to give everything to him. Everything that you think and do, everything that you are, everything in between, give it to him. We are not under the Jewish law to come on an annual basis and sacrifice. We don't have to come up with our best sheep, our best lamb. Our, we, we don't have to come and lay it before him. God just says, sacrifice yourself. Lay yourself on the altar. Not physically, but everything that you think and do, everything that you are, and everything else in between. Lay it on the altar for me. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you were inspired by today's sermon. Connect with the Life Church through our website, TLCDallas.com, and on Facebook and Instagram at TLCDallas. Remember, together we can love God, love people, and make a difference. God bless.